Hi, I'm Anna-Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, the podcast about uncomfortable and awkward conversations. I'm excited about this week's podcast. It's one that I've had on my agenda for a while. We're going to be talking about disability rights and disability visibility with a couple of people that I know through Twitter, which I found out through doing this show, is actually a great place to kind of follow the disability rights movement because it's one of the most accessible uh, platforms there is. We're going to be talking to David Perry, who is a professor of medieval history at Dominican University, but also a disability rights activist and journalist. He'll be in the second part of the show. First, we're going to be talking to Alice Wong, who is a disabled activist based in San Francisco. She is the founder of the Disability Visibility Project, and she's the co-founder of Crypt the Vote. And she is coming right up. So I'd like to welcome to the show Alice Wong, who is a disabled activist based in San Francisco. She is founder of the Disability Visibility Project and the co-founder of Crypt the Vote. Alice, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Anna. As you can tell by voice, I have a little, uh, I wear a mask to help me breathe. So, you know, I might sound a little weird and there might be like unusual pauses, but other than that, if, as long as you can understand me, you know, that's great. I think it actually makes you sound kind of cool. I don't know. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I consider myself a cousin of Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I want to talk to you first about Crip the Vote. And my first question is going to be the most awkward question, maybe, which is that, so it's okay to say Crip? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah let's get awkward. Let's get really real. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're just getting right to it. I love it. So Crip, you know, like many other you know, uh, communities, this is a word that's, you know, kind of an inside community word. And CRIP is a term that's used by some disabled people to signify a political and cultural identity. And, you know, it's really about reclaiming a slur that's been used to denigrate us for decades. Now, I don't, I'm not bothered when people say CRIP the vote because that's obviously a hashtag and that's what it's about, but if a non-disabled person says something about like uh, trip culture without like as if they, they were you know appropriating it, that would be a little bit more you know not okay. But I think within the context of disability rights and disability communities, it's very you know it's contingent. Everything's contingent, but uh, definitely with the word trip, I think it's. It's how you say it. It's really within the context. Okay, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. Or not. Although I also now have to ask, like, do you kind of like that it has, you know, kind of gangster associations? Does that make is that a like, uh, is that a is that a bug or a feature? Well, you know, I am mindful of that too. That you know, every once in a while, I see a tweet with our hashtag, and there's always somebody that's. Things are so hilarious. <laughs> and says, this is not the crypto vote I was thinking about. <laughs> and to put a meme of a gangster, and, you know, I just find that to be, oh, please, let's get some originality. But yeah, I think uh, what's funny is that a lot of people still don't relate, to, you know, the word crypt to people with disabilities or the 
the connotation. So I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, room to grow mm. in terms of really educating people about disability culture, disability history. Mm-hmm. And definitely crib culture is a real term. If anybody wants to Google it, it's for real. Um, <laughs> and it's not. And, it is about and it is about disability culture. And it's about a certain kind of disability culture, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's about a, a pride. Kind of, you know, pride and uh, definitely more of a variation of, you know, a politicized identity. So, you know, there's a lot of people with disabilities that, you know, we've heard from that really don't like the hashtag. Mm. You know, they're somewhat uncomfortable by it and, you know, affected. And we understand that. I mean, I think my uh, co-partners and I, you know, we did this deliberately. Because mm. we really wanted to indicate and signify our political sensibilities. And that really encrypted vote is about people identifying as disabled not because of their health condition or because of their diagnosis, but it's about this membership uh, within this larger protected class has historically has a shared language, history, and, you know, legacy of, you know, discrimination and oppression. And it also reminds me a little bit of, I mean, as you said, there are other subcultures that have chosen to use a word that used to be denigrating as a source of pride. And to me, the place I find kind of a weird echo of that in my life where I'm trying to sort of identify inward is that I'm an alcoholic. And I am proudly, I call myself a drunk all the time, you know? And I don't mind it when in the context of AA, we talk about being drunks or sots or addicts or junkies, you know? Um, because in a way, also, that's our choice to use that word, right? Exactly. That is, a, it's, it's, about cho- it's about the choosing of that identity rather than having it thrust upon you. It is about subverting the meaning, right? Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, taking away the people who are saying it in a harmful manner and just say, I, I embrace this part of who I am. You know, why hide it? You know, it's nothing to be shameful about. And I think that's the thing that a lot of non-disabled people still, you know, kind of don't understand. And that's kind of what you know, a lot of ableism is about is that a lot of people who don't have disabilities think, you know, why don't all disabled people want to get cured or, hmm. you know, why aren't they trying harder to, to be like everybody else? <laughs> and a lot of times it's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, can you just like, understand how it's a lot like white supremacy with the sense that you know the white this or is default not able body this is very much the default and mm-hmm. it's always centered and anything that deviates from that, whether it's physically, you know, uh developmentally, cognitively, just the the way people think and move and behave is seen as other. Mm-hmm. And very much, you know, people with disabilities have always been the other, much like other marginalized communities. And 
Right. Like you wouldn't say to people of color, like, why don't you want to be? Well, actually, you would say people have for a long time asked people of color to be more white. But that's exactly. <laughs> but that, of course, is not, yeah. not our goal or hopefully for progressive people, not our goal anymore. I want to get back to sort of the purpose of CryptoVote. I, I was really curious about the terminology, and I do think language is important, and we might come back to that. But let's talk about what the hashtag was actually supposed to do. Um, and, and it was specifically, you started it last year, and it was targeted at the 2016 election. Do you want to talk about what it was and w- for a minute, and then we'll kind of move towards what you sure want it to do moving forward? Yeah, so uh, just a little background. I mean, my two partners at CryptoVote, uh, Greg Baratan and Andrew Paul Wright, they're friends of mine who are also disabled activists. And we noticed at that time, there was little mention of disability issues or you know, disabled voters as a group that candidates should court. And when we created when uh Greg, you know, created the idea of some sort of project online, I really, you know, created the hashtag Rip the Vote because it really was a riff on you know, rock the vote. And to me, you know, to create something is to, you know, imbue a space with our disability culture. So I really want it to be like an active, you know, idea that we want to crypt the vote. We really want to encourage disabled people to vote and not only become, you know, politically engaged during during the uh, presidential election. So... That was kind of the origins of the thinking behind the name of the project. It could have been something else, but I just thought it was a little bit, you know, it's short. <laughs> it kind of, it kind of drives your attention. It did. You know, whether, whether you like it or don't like it, it just, you know, it's a lot better than something that's really, you know, kind of, you know, middle of the road. It kind of tries to please everyone. And I, I think, I mean, I, I will leave it up to you. Do you feel like you had success? I mean, in terms of attention, I definitely got my attention. And I, well, I, you know, um, you and I got introduced by David Perry. I found out, I mean, I guess I knew on some intellectual level of, there was a disability rights movement, you know, um, but I felt like this election, I did see more of it. Do you feel like you got, you've had some success? I think so. I mean, we don't have, like, any metrics or any measurable things, but I think that we definitely got a lot of media attention, and I think that, you know, with this particular election, social media has, you know, clearly played a much stronger role than, you know, even the last, you know, two, you know, elections. I think, you know, there's so many people getting their news and also sharing news about themselves. Mm. Online, I think there's been a, right now, you know, a critical mass of disabled people who are really, you know, fighting one another and fighting community uh, online, especially with, I think, again, getting back to ableism, so many people felt really isolated socially growing up or becoming disabled later in life. And once you kind of to connect with others is kind of really magical. Mm. And I think what's, what, one of the greatest things about CryptoVote is that 
Do people really feel ownership of it? It's not just something that Greg, Andrew, and I direct. It's really, you know, people just use the hashtag, and we've seen it used in all sorts of ways. And people have shared with us that I voted for the first time, mm-hmm. or that I took my adult disabled child to register to vote. Mm-hmm. I mean, people really, you know, got involved, and I think that's really, you know, part of the start is, you know, political engagement starts with, I think, identity and becoming, you know, is being able to share your stories. And and I don't want to make any assumptions about your actual political leanings, but disability did come up in this past election um, pretty explicitly by one of the candidates. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> And you had you already you were already an activist um, when Trump did his famous, infamous mocking of the disabled reporter. What did that do to the community? What was the what was the reaction there? Well, I mean, I personally was not that surprised. And I wasn't <laughs> that like, and I wasn't that horrified by it. I really. Think What's really fascinating is uh, the reaction by not disabled people because uh-huh. people come up to me, they're like, oh my God, wasn't that like the most horrible, horrible thing? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, Trump has been trying to tear apart, you know, the Department of Education. You know, if you look at healthcare with the uh, AHCA, Mm-hmm. That is completely dismantling Medicaid, and that is much bigger danger than you know this one-time botching. I mean, people with disabilities have you know much tougher spits in terms of day in, day out, stupid, mm-hmm. uh, you know, idiotic, really just you know rude behavior by people. And to me, it wasn't like the there's so many things that Trump has done that's been so abhorrent to so many different groups that, you know, I feel like this is just one of uh, Betty. Mm-hmm. And I really wouldn't, and I really don't think of it as mm-hmm. something that I bring up all the time when I think of Trump. Mm-hmm. When I think of that, I think of the bigger picture in terms of you know, the people he's appointing in terms of his cabinet. You know, with Betsy DeVos, who really didn't even know what the basic, you know, federal laws to protect these students with disabilities. I mean, you know, people like that, that he's appointing and making major policy decisions that impact billions of us versus this one isolated and, you know, horrifying, but, you know, isn't it? But it's one of just, so many, and I wouldn't. To me, it's just really the thought. It's just a bit of a distraction. Do mm. much more, I think, serious things that I'm personally more interested in. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. So, as I have said before, I am not new at the web or the internet. I've been at it for a very, very long time, uh, longer than I would care to admit it 20 years. 
But when it came time for me to do my own website, AnnaMarieCox.com, I use Squarespace. And if you've ever tried to create your own website, even if you have tons of experience and remember doing that HTML coding by hand, you know that it is a hassle, especially though if you don't know what you're doing. But you can use Squarespace. You can make your next move, make your next website with Squarespace. Create a beautiful website with their all-in-one platform. There is nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. They provide award-winning 24-7 customer support, and they will get you your own custom domain with an experience that's fully transparent and simple to set up. Make your next move, lock down your domain, and create a website to launch that idea. Use offer code FRIENDS for 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. That's FRIENDS for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with Squarespace. We're talking about CryptoVote, the Disability Visibility Project, and about, I can say this in this context, Crip culture. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was language. Tell me what it is that you wanted to point out about your own language. Yeah, so I used the term idiotic uh, earlier to describe our president. I realized I just did the very thing that I was going to you know, critique about in terms of language and, you know, uh, so-called liberals and, you know, progressives who've been talking about Trump a really kind of, you know, shockingly ableist terms. Mm. So, you know, and again, this shows that, you know, I myself am completely guilty. I trip up. I make mistakes. And, you know, I should know better as well. But, you know, for, here's some examples of, you know, language that I think people with disabilities are really uh, concerned about when it comes to people who are our allies or our so-called allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, people who are, you know, critical of Trump, but they say, He's insane. He's crazy. Mm. He's certifiable. And there's a lot of armchair diagnosis mm-hmm. of Trump in terms of his mental health. It was also incredibly irresponsible and inappropriate is speculation about his son. Mm. Oh, there's yeah. been that as well. And I feel like, you know, there are so many constructive ways to voice your opposition to Trump. I mean, there's like 31 flavors of <laughs> different ways of like, you know, stretching our language and our our adjectives, our use of adjectives that can avoid using, you know, terms such as insane, crazy, batshit, crazy. You um, know, schizophrenic. Um, psychopathic, sociopathic. Yes. Yeah. I, as someone who has a mental health issue myself, like I actually try to be sensitive to that as well. Um, like I'm, I'm bipolar, and I've found myself. Like, <laughs> You're one of us. You're one of us. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I am. I am. I am one of you. I am one of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I mean, I've got a, I've got a several. I've got an arms length diagnosis, probably if you include alcoholism true, too, right? True. Um, so I've, I mean, I'm on a huge cocktail of drugs too. Maybe we can like 
talk talk about that later. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's true. Like I do agree that we we use kind of shorthand about mental health to describe Trump when really, and this goes back to your point about whether or not his mocking of the disabled reporter was offensive or not. Yeah, it was. But there's there's so much more that's like more effectively offensive that he does. I think in general. The rule of thumb should be if you can describe the action, that's better than describing the state of mind because you can't know a state of mind, right? Like you can't make a diagnosis, but you can say what he is doing that is bad, you know? Absolutely. And the impact on people, I think that's another, you know, really great way to talk about, to really, you know, give a framing of his words and his actions is to really think about how this is, you know, damaging to so many communities. You did a lot of work around um, the repeal of the ACA and against the AHCA. And I presume, like with a lot of progressive activists, you consider it's something of a victory to have the AHCA fail. But... What is on your radar now as a, a big political legislative fight? I heard you talk about De- Betsy. You mentioned Betsy DeVos, the educational department. What are your other yeah. top concerns? Speaking well, of what Trump the, is actually doing. Here, I think there's – I'm not really, you know, I definitely relaxed it. You know, last weekend I kind of, you know, took a little social media break. and just kind of, you know, caught a little breath of relief, but – I think definitely with healthcare, uh, especially, you know, the safety nets, you know, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, these are all, I think, there's a lot of actions that can be done, you know, by the administration that doesn't require any, you know, legislative act. And I think we really got to still be incredibly vigilant about protecting Medicaid. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if later this year if, you know, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, you know, top price is really just, you know, they're going to really, they're having, they are having, the person he is appointed uh, to run Medicaid is just, she's, well, she's done in Indiana, is incredibly draconian, and I think, you know, I'm just looking down the line and just anticipating actions by CMS and by red states, who, you know, they also want to change uh, the services they provide, and they're going to be some states that probably request, you know, block grants, which are going to be incredibly you know, harmful and really strip uh, the services and coverage available to the poorest and sickest and the most disabled in our country. Mm. And, you know, you were speaking about our so-called allies um, before um, in in the way that uh, progressives sometimes talk about Trump and use very ableist language and armchair diagnosis. Um, this is that's another thing this show is really concerned about is the idea of the so-called allies or the people who want to be allies and how 
people can be better allies, or at least more self-aware. Like, what is your number one pet peeve with progressives who like to think of themselves as, like, good liberals, but who maybe have a blind spot on disability rights? Oh, I don't know so many. <laughs> There's so many pet peeves. We have time, we have time I mean, for a few. I think... Okay, well, I just, you know... I think there's one thing that they, I think a lot of non-disabled people think is that disability is somewhat separate from them, like they're not touched by it. Mm. And I have to think, you know, I really want people to really understand that we are probably one of the most intersectional identities out there. Mm. Anybody can become disabled at any time. So it's really important, I think, for, you know, good liberals, progressives, or, you know, potential allies to disabled people to really understand there's no binary that is that, you know, disability is everywhere, mm-hmm. even if it's not apparent. I mean, the majority of the 54 million people who are disabled in the United States are wheelchair users like me. There are folks with invisible disabilities, like like mental illness, diabetes, HIV. I mean, Mm -hmm. everybody knows somebody with a disability. And I think every political issue can be seen with a disabled lens. So, you know, whether they think there's a particular issues that are you know, this disability issues, I think, of almost every issue mm-hmm. yeah, has could, a disabled issue. Yeah, you could go down a list. I mean, I was just sort of thinking off the top of my head. I mean, obviously, there's healthcare and there's education. Um, there's accessibility. Those are maybe more obvious. But then there's things like gender, uh, sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Uh, violence, police violence. Police violence is something where I feel like people are starting to understand the intersection of disability and police violence. There's so many people uh, who are black and brown, also disabled with either you know, a disability or a mental health disability, and they are the ones that are often killed by police. Mm-hmm. And so many times the disability aspects of that person's identity is erased. Mm-hmm. You know, it's clearly seen as, you know, black and brown men, which is absolutely true. But also, we have to, you know, also address that for many times people in, uh, let's say, mental health crisis, that disability is a big factor in the way law enforcement interacts with them or perceives them. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, this brings us back to, you know, ableism and, you know, these ideas that people with mental illness are super violent and, you know, dangerous. I think for many times, you know, if you look at the statistics, people with mental illness and disabilities are victims of violence. <laughs> They're not the perpetrators of violence. That's right. That's right. Um, another thing I, I... Can I bring up one more thing? I'm sure, sorry about sure, that. Sure, go ahead. Go ahead. I wanted to bring up another thing that's related to ableism. Um, you know, this past February, the House, you know, devoted to strike down a recent rule by the Obama administration. I don't know if you remember this. It was a administration a regulation about gun control. 
Oh, right. No, actually, I am familiar with this, yeah. People who receive Social Security to have a bid to Otis for purchasing a gun. So that rule would have entered all those people purely because of their disability into FBI background check system. And that's pretty problematic. I mean, it's, it's discriminatory, it's stigmatizing, and there are constitutional issues as well. So with the House... Voted. So when the House voted to roll back that rule, I just saw a lot of media coverage, especially, you know, at the progressive media and on Twitter, using incredibly ableist terms when describing people with mental illness. And, you know, it's like, oh, how did they... Yeah, having crazy people, letting crazy people get guns. That was right. the... Again, yeah. it, just like... You know, people just look at the statistics and really solve the facts. It's like very few are actually, you know, the ones who actually are violent and mm-hmm. dangerous. And we just have this blanket, blanket, you know, stereotype. It's really just incredibly insidious and just, you know, so difficult and entrenched this belief that just colors the way so many people are treated. Right. And to, I actually remember this very vividly because um, we had a similar uh, situation in Minnesota a couple of years ago where people wanted to outlaw guns um, for anyone who had um, some kind of, you know, su- re- received payments from the state, which is I think the situation was with um, uh, this federal bill had to do with people who were not personally in charge of their own finances would be put on the background checklist. And I went to the hearings for that here in um, St. Paul. And it was an interesting, diverse group of people who protest, who um, testified against it and included NAMI, you know, the Nationalist Alliance for Mental Illness. And I think we are actually, you didn't know this, Alice, but you are in a part of now this show's proud tradition of being the most pro-Second Amendment progressive podcast <laughs> out there. <laughs> And I think it's, but it's true that like um, this, you know, there is disabled people have the same set of rights that anyone else does, and if that one of those rights includes access to to a firearm, wanting to be able to buy one with the same ability of any other abled person, you know, you shouldn't be able to. Like it's, I'm just exactly. so super aware of how many times I use the word able in that sentence. By the way, like <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Uh- I mean, I've seen, like, articles where, like, you know, you've seen, like, articles about, like, legally blind people mm-hmm. being able to hunt. And again, you know, I shouldn't do this, but I read the comments. Mm. And again, you see these, like, seriously, like, you know, incredibly ableist ideas, like, oh, my God, how did that happen? And, you know, we, we don't presume that People with disabilities have competence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just because, you know, with some, you know, modifications or other supports, they can pretty much do anything anybody else does. It's just a matter of doing something differently. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, again, it's about, I'm not, I'm really for judge, I am for judge control. I'm, I'm freaked out by weapons of any kind, but... I will defend any disabled person's rights 
If anybody else dared to get a wall bar and buy a rifle, I was, you know, I should be able to as well. Yeah, I and I and we've discussed on this show that how it might be a good idea to just at least let's just speculate. I don't want to get into too much, you know, dystopian future projection, but we've talked about how maybe people should just go ahead and familiarize themselves with the idea of owning a gun. Oh, I'm ready for this zombie apocalypse. I you. <laughs> This is With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. These days, you can get practically anything on demand. You can get a masseuse or flowers or food or this podcast. You can listen whenever you want when it's convenient for you. So why are you going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours and those long lines and perhaps even other people when you can get postage on demand with stamps.com? Anything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk at stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, stamps.com never closes. And you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. Now, so I've been writing a lot of letters lately. I don't know about you guys. Um, I highly encourage you to write them yourself, especially if they're to the White House or to Congress. And I've been using stamps.com because, you know what, it means I only have to interact with the people I want to interact with and not interact with people at the post office. And I can also, when I get an idea in the middle of the night, I can write that letter and put a stamp on it without having to think through whether it's really a good idea. I can just kind of go with it. So right now, use friends for this special offer. It's a four-week trial. It includes postage and a digital scale. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on their radio microphone at the top of the homepage and use the code FRIENDS. That's stamps.com and enter FRIENDS after you click on the microphone. Never go to the post office again. You know, I wanted to talk to you before we go about uh, a way the disability is visible online in a way that I, I'm I sense, in fact, maybe even know that you're much less comfortable with, which is sort of when a heartwarming story goes viral. Oh, yes. (laughs) A heartwarming story about a disabled person going viral. It happens all the time. Yesterday, I actually sent you a link to a story about uh, at a restaurant, a waiter sitting down at a table of a couple and feeding a disabled woman. Now, we can't know the details here, right? But Exactly. But I sent that to you. I, I, I did want your reaction. So please give me your reaction. Okay. So what you said it to me, the minute I saw the headline, you can imagine this on, on air. Um, you can't see me right now, but I did a really hard eye roll. <laughs> I did a really hard eye roll, and I did a lot of side eye. And, you know, basically this is, you know, the typical clickbait, and this is, a, this is what really bothers me, is that rather than more media that, you know, really respectfully and authentically, uh, you know, represents people with disabilities, we get drivel like this because it's really human interest, like catnip. <laughs> you know, people not disabled people love this stuff. And, you know, again, this is where the waiter, I'm sure, is a very nice person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, more power to him. But what's really objectionable is that 
you know, this disabled person did not have a day. Mm-hmm. You know, the story, they never bothered to, you know, talk to the person and to get their side of the story. They don't even have a day. It was, it was so crazy. Like, I hate to interrupt you, but, like, that's what I noticed, too, as a reporter, was that all the attention was on the waiter. Like, he apparently got job offers and, like, a scholar maybe, like, offered, like, some uh, uh, opportunity to become a nurse. I'm like, what about the fucking disabled person? Like, maybe she needs some help, you know? Like, <laughs> also, we're talking about cutting Medicaid. You know, we're talking about all these. And, and we have all this endemic problems with accessibility in, the, in this country. But it's the waiter that gets credit, not the systemic problem. Well, in a way, it helps, I think, this is my, my really cynical, you know, uh, perspective. But I think it makes not disabled people comforted to know that there are still good people out there. And no matter what happens, no matter what's rough that, you know, people with disabilities go through, there will always be good Samaritans to step in. Mm. So if we don't have to worry about things like civil rights and disability rights and accessibility, right? Because you know, there's going to be the good-hearted people. <laughs> and, you know, again, this is all about, you know, the whole story is driven to, to really serve the non-disabled audience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where everything is centered. And I think what about long-term, you know, Wish list, you know, if I really was Darth Vader mm-hmm. and I really could force choke people, you know, I would force choke media, the media, uh-huh. and I would really, you know, encourage, you know, by little underlings, <laughs> more disabled people to be writing their own stories. I would force choke publishers to have them publish people that are actually, you know, people with disabilities who write about people with disabilities. Uh, as you know, I, don't really, I mean, there's not that many people in media who are reporters or journalists that identify as disabled. And, you know, I think this is another thing that people don't realize is that so many stories about people with disabilities are not either told by people with disabilities at all. And there's something wrong with that. I mean, I think we think about any other minority group, it's like, is it acceptable in this day and age for the, for the far, huge majority of stories that are out there are really generated for non-disabled audiences or it's really told through the lens, a non-disabled lens. Mm-hmm. And where many times the purpose of the disabled person is really a prop mm-hmm. to feed into the storyline that makes uh, people feel good versus, you know, capturing actual names, the actual identities of people, the actual voices of disabled people. I think this you know, I'll just tell you another story I just read. Uh, I actually shared it with David. It was about this guy who owned a car wash who, you know, employed a lot of autistic people. 
But guess what? The story about the business, it was only, they only interviewed the business owner talking about how great it is to hire autistic people at home. <laughs> how, wonder, how wonderfully industrious they are. Oh my God. And how, how more people should hire them. But not one quote from an actual employee. Hmm. And that to me just rings so hollow. And it's really, a lot of people don't even realize that's problematic. Mm-hmm. So that to me is part of the, the why I do what I do, why I'm so ordering. Is that, you know, it's like, this is kind of, you know, effed up. <laughs> you can say, you can say fucked up if you want. We're, we're... Oh, thank gosh. Oh, thank gosh. It's <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you're so ornery, Alice. I'm, I'm, I am a big fan. And uh, I think people should definitely follow you on Twitter. You are at SFDireWolf, right? And um, do you want to just give a shout out to some other good people to follow on Twitter uh, uh, if people are interested in this movement and want to start to try and listen and observe and, and maybe even get involved? Yeah, I think in general, I would, uh, I would advise anybody just uh, if they use Twitter, you check out the hashtag uh, vote. You're going to be totally exposed to a huge swath of people with disabilities sharing not only stories about themselves, but also information about the issues that they care about most. So I would really recommend anybody to really discover this huge, vibrant, dynamic, rich community that's really just waiting to be discovered by a lot of people. All right. Thank you for joining us, Alice. I really appreciate it. Um, you have been really instrumental in opening my eyes uh, to this movement and this community, and I look forward to continuing to engage. Well, thank you, Audrey. And, and, you know, uh, I, I do want to let you know that uh, later this April, we're going to have a Twitter chat about disabled people in the media. Oh, Looking at the coverage of, you know, politics so far, and we would love to, to have you join us. I would be happy to. Yeah, let's definitely like let's let's Connect. get that let's get that connected offline, and for I'll sure. promote it on the show. Um, I think that the first step for a lot of people is just to start paying attention to the news coverage, and I think the first step for me as a journalist is to continue to encourage my colleagues to be more responsible and inclusive in doing this kind of reporting. I think that there's some sort of basic inclusive, it's not even like inclusiveness or PC shit, right? It's just like being a good reporter, you know, like. Yeah, it's really basic stuff. It's like, I mean, I wonder, like, this would be another whole episode of your podcast. But, we should, you know, you could do one about, like, reporting and journalism and people with disabilities mm-hmm. because I think there's just so much to talk about in terms of I think better practices or best practices in terms of you know what to do or what not to do <laughs> there is and hopefully well, the show will be around for a while and we'll have time to do that it could be the anti-inspiration report <laughs> <laughs> I will no, try no. <laughs> Nobody, nobody will be fed 
Nobody will be asking the prompt <laughs> for, for a viral video, okay? That's what really bothers me, Dad. Oh my God! Those prom videos, those asking the like Down oh syndrome person to prom, those are terrible. Those are. I mean, no prom is coming up. It's like I'm just dirtied by boys because graduation and prom are like the worst. It's like there's just gonna be the same cycle of clickbait. <laughs> so you know, let's let's just, let's just wait for it and let it wash right over us. All right. I will be looking. You know what? People definitely should be following you on Twitter as an antidote to when the prom date inspiration porn starts happening. Yeah, so. yeah. There's a lot, a lot of snark for me. So all right. Oh, th- thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you. I'm, I pr- thank you for pushing your bedtime. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye bye. Yeah. Bye bye. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. For decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of its customers. So Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were fed up with getting ripped off, started Harry's to fix shaving. And my husband uses Harry's, and he loves the convenience of Harry's. You know, they shipped the razors directly to him. And also, it's their razor factory. Uh, When Jeff and Andy started, they knew there was only one way to ensure quality. They bought the blade factory. And by taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers blades at half the prices. It's just $2 a blade compared to $4 or more than what you'll pay at the drugstore. They are so confident you'll love their blades, they're giving you their trial set free with just $3 to cover shipping. Your free trial set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, which is really cool and kind of sporty. It has this like orange rubber cover to it. Five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. That is a $13 value for you to try. So stop messing around and get started shaving with Harry's today. By claiming your free trial offer, a $13 value for free, just cover the shipping, to get your free trial set with that razor handle, a five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com friends right now. Again, that's harrys.com slash friends. Hi, welcome back to With Friends Like These. I'm now talking to David Perry. He covers disability rights for Pacific Standard and is a professor of history at Dominican University and the father of a 10-year-old with Down syndrome. Hey, David. Hello, how are you? I am good. So I've wanted to talk to you for a while because I think I can credit you and your Twitter account and your coverage for Pacific Standard for kind of opening my eyes a bit to the disability rights movement. And I guess I, I am, of course, when I started following you, I, I wondered a little bit how you wound up doing this because you're by day, you're kind of a superhero. By day, you're a <laughs> professor of medieval history. By night, you're a disability rights advocate and journalist. Yeah. What is the, I mean, you, you have a 10-year-old with Down syndrome, but, but what got you into the activism and the journalism part of this? I mean, I, I assume being a professor of medieval history is already already pretty much fills 40 hours a week. So It does fill a lot of hours of the week, although I have to say that I'm really dedicating more and more of my time with the, the support of my university to this, to this movement. But that wasn't the plan. So my son was born, and I think like a lot of people, when you suddenly encounter disability and a diagnosis in your life, uh, you're, you're thrown a little bit. It, it does change your worldview. And so I started reading because I had a Ph.D., and that's how I process life as I read, and I try to read smart people who know things I don't know. 
And uh, I did a little bit of writing, just a little bit. And what really changed was that in January of 2013, a white suburban young man with Down syndrome named Ethan Saylor was killed by Maryland police officers, or off-duty sheriff's deputies acting as security. And he was killed over a $5 movie ticket. And uh, I kept waiting for the journalism, not the, the movement, the disability rights movement was all over this, but I kept waiting for the journalism in formal media to reflect the voices of the disability rights movement, to reflect the voices of people of color who are also disabled, who are working on police violence from multiple angles. And I, I kept seeing a real gap between what the formal media was writing about disability, specifically in these life and death cases, but also more generally, and what my, my friends and allies and mentors in the movement were writing and saying. And so I tried to apply my skills as a writer to do just just a piece here, uh, one op-ed for CNN, another one uh, for The Nation, and, and start to, to bridge that gap. And it really has taken off. I mean, I've now written hundreds of pieces following that kind of angle. Again, always trying to be someone who promotes and elevates the wisdom of the disability rights movement into mass media spaces. I noticed you said the formal media. That sounds yeah. a little bit different than the mainstream media, or as Sarah Palin might say, the lamestream media. Yeah. Is that your preferred way of uh, categorizing the, the sort of activist well, media I and mean, formal media, media today? Right. I mean, we were talking about Twitter accounts, right? And that that's not exactly. I think the formal media. Um, you know, I do think about people who are. I spent a lot of time, especially in the last couple of years, thinking about local beat reporters, people who are you know, NBC 11 Tulsa, you know, the people who are doing kind of these sorts of, who are doing stories often around disability in local environments who are not writing 3,000 word or 6,000 word long form pieces for the Atlantic or, 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 um, or even people who are on cable news, but just the, the, the thousands of local reporters covering stories that often have to do with disability, but who have no training and no access to, again, this vibrant, decades-old, well-organized, incredibly vocal, incredibly well-literate in terms of writing lots of blogs and tweets and essays and books, this disability rights movement that has a lot to say but just so rarely gets into that space. And I sort of am hearing kind of two different tracks of activism from you. Or, or there's the activism itself, which happens, you know, in grassroots uh, way, and it has to do with you know, letter writing and campaigning. And then there's journalism, right? And there's how yeah. journalism covers disability. And because maybe because you're a writer, I'm a writer, I'm a former academic myself, you know, that's, that's sort of where you put your energy. But obviously, you feel like that's important. I mean, that's how journalism covers disability is the way into other kinds of activism, I guess. I think so. You know, I've been working a lot over the last couple of years on, on, on violence. Uh, I just wrote a white paper for the, the Ruderman Foundation where I read hundreds of stories uh, from local news mostly on the murder of people with disabilities by, uh, their, by their caregivers, by their parents, their, their, their husbands, wives, children. You know, har these horrible stories, and, and I just read hundreds and hundreds of them. And the disability rights movement, again, letter writers, activists, marchers, organizers, people doing vigils, they have been talking about this for a long time. And in 2015, for example, in well over 100 stories, not a single reporter referenced that movement. 
And that's what I mean by there. there's just this huge gap between one kind of activism and, and making that activism visible uh, beyond Twitter, beyond the blog world, beyond talking to each other, but to, in, the, in the most mass kind of ways. And it'd be, it'd be equivalent to someone doing a story about a civil rights issue and not talking to someone from a civil rights organization. I mean, racial, like black American civil rights yeah, movement. Yeah, I mean, if, if, you, if you were writing about violence in the black community, you might call the NAACP. You know, if you're writing about violence in the, in the queer community, you might call, I don't know, the Trevor Project or the Human Rights Council. You know, I mean, and, and there are different groups and there are strengths and weaknesses of different groups. But as a journalist, as a trained journalist, you have been trained to go get sources of information. You've been trained to make sure you represent all sides, sometimes, I think, to our, our profession's detriment. But that's your, I mean, that's kind of the basic move is to make <laughs> sure you get representation and voices and quotes from all sides. But the, the side of people with disabilities, both kind of the, the informal activists, but also people with big names and big budgets behind them and, and you know, big, big offices in Washington, D.C. and lobbyists, even they aren't getting into these kinds of stories. And, and it's not a hard fix in some ways because it's just follow the best practices that you're taught in journalism school, but also for disability. And people are pretty open to that message once you say it to them, but you have to have that conversation. One of the things that I think is interesting about the disability rights visibility movement and civil rights movement is that it's one of those things that people probably don't realize how visible disability already is, if that makes sense. Like, people with disabilities are everywhere, right? I mean, we just don't... I mean, you expand on that. That's actually something I've sort of learned from you, if you want to expand on that. Yeah, so, I mean, just the numbers, right? There's there's 57 million people, Americans, who identify as disabled, which is a really big chunk of our population, and that's just the people who identify as disabled. I like to say that, that 100% of all humans are one degree of separation from someone with a significant disability, and it might be you. <laughs> um, and that, that kind of changes. I, I have been dyslexic my whole life, my whole life. I learned how to read when I was six by by reading kind of backwards and sideways and reassembling words in my head. Uh, I never identified as disabled. That was never something, a label I claimed for myself. It never would have occurred to me to do so. Now, as I write about my son and about this community I've joined, I think about my dyslexia all the time. I think about the ways I use GPS or spell checkers as assistive technology as disability-related assistive technology. Disability is a universal part of the human condition. It is everywhere. Uh, everybody knows lots and lots of people who are disabled, uh, but we don't always know that we know that. And we don't always identify across the movement, across categories. We talk about dyslexia, or we talk about autism, or we talk about people using wheelchairs. And we don't look at, at disability as kind of a, a culturally shaped uh, category of identity like race, like sexuality, like gender. There's a lot of very, there's a lot of sort of academic talk we could, we could engage in about what these categories mean. But we see disability across all these categories and disabled as a, as a, as a marker of identity and not necessarily a negative one. In fact, I would say in the movement, very much not a negative one. There's a real, a real movement to claim the word disabled with pride. Yeah, I, I I've noticed that on Twitter. There's a, there was a hashtag for a while that was disabled and cute, which yeah. trended. Yeah, that's Kia Brown, who's a great <laughs> a great uh, African American disabled writer. Yeah, who well, started that? Well, so you got into this in part because you're the father of, of a son with Down syndrome, but in part because you just because the specific incident. 
um, that yeah. that happened a couple of years ago. What has the process been like for you as you moved from father to interested uh, activist to active journalist to someone who actually now identifies as part of that movement that did you, I mean, was that relatively new as you discovered your own dyslexia making you a part of this movement that you thought you were just a part of as a father? Yeah, and I, I try to be very thoughtful about that. And, and you know, there was a day, I don't know, about, about, I think maybe about a year ago, a little more, where I realized that everything I was writing was much more visible than it used to be, and that meant that the stakes changed. And, the, you know, I'd always tried to be very thoughtful about who I was quoting and, and who I was, you know, on what, on what grounds I was making claims and, and whose work I was promoting. But suddenly there was a lot of pressure on me to, to, always, to always get it right because I am I'm white, I am cis male, I am tenured, um, <laughs> and I am relatively undisabled. I, I define myself as an able-bodied person. I, tend, I do now talk about my dyslexia in fairly open ways, but I try not to use it as kind of a shield to defend me against criticism that I'm not, in fact, promoting disabled writers enough, that I'm not thinking about the diversity of my sources, but also how to help uh, other people make media, not just be quoted in my media. And it has been a big, it has been a real, a real journey for me as a writer, and I have certainly made mistakes, and I've tried to do better. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I think no, no one has yelled at me in a few weeks for doing something wrong in that in that regard, but uh, I will likely get yelled at again within the next couple of weeks, and I always try to listen to that really hard and think about how I can improve because cause it's a big responsibility. There, there are, as you know, tens and tens of millions of people who are disabled, and there are very few reporters who are working on these issues from the perspective of the disability rights community. There are medical reporters and science reporters and crime reporters, but really trying to be a disability rights reporter. Uh, there, there aren't a lot of people who are doing that, and so I'm trying to both do it really well, but also elevate other people to, to join me. And, uh, and there, there, are, there are certainly, I'm not trying to say I'm the only person doing it, but I've become visible, and I'm trying to make sure that I'm not alone and that I'm doing good work. You know, we we talk on this show about awkward conversations and try to have some awkward conversations and encourage people to have them themselves. And this sounds like a something sort of parallel to the conversation I had with Ira Madison III a few weeks ago as far as if you're – what we were talking about was a white person reaching out and trying to have more friends who are people of color, right? And in, if you do that, you're going to inevitably make some – Mistakes. You are going to say yeah. things that might be offensive. You're going to say that you're going to make assumptions that might be wrong. And you kind of have to just, as a white person with privilege, kind of be like, you know what? Yes, I screwed up, and now I'm going to try to do better. This sounds like a very parallel experiment. If people in their lives want to reach out and f- try to find more, you know, or discover more about the disability community, I mean, what do you, what kind of advice do you have about 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 doing that kind of outreach? Yeah, I mean, my, my, first, my first piece of advice is to get on Twitter, and, and Twitter specifically. Uh, and I say Twitter specifically because it is interactive, it is public, and it, has, it is incredibly accessible as a space. So people who are visually impaired, people who are hard of hearing or deaf, people who, uh, who, who may not speak verbally but who can type, people who can't type with their fingers but can type um, by using voice or any number of other interfaces, people who do not like social interaction in, in physical space. It's, it's just a, it, 
it's just an incredibly accessible space. Um, I often think of it as the most accessible conversation in human history. And so it's, it's got a really vibrant disability rights community. And the thing to do is to get on there, find people who are talking about these things, and spend a lot of time listening. And uh, I do think whatever success I've had, and we could debate that, uh, but whatever success I've had uh, within the community has been based on spending a lot of time listening to disabled people and reading their work and talking and asking questions and promoting their work and following their conversations. And I would say that's analogous across when you're trying to get a sense of other communities. You have to do a lot of listening work. And what about, um, I mean, I guess there's no other way to put this, but um, if you have disabled people in your life or you meet people who are, have a clear physical disability, do you, is there a way for people to educate themselves about just what, the, you know, being, like not being a fucking asshole, you know? <laughs> like, I, I think everyone feels awkward. Not everyone, yeah. I should say. I should be very yeah. clear. Abled people often feel awkward around disabled yeah. people, right? And I do think that I probably have worked on that myself by just doing some of the things you're talking about, the following on Twitter and, like, watching videos, um, watching panels, and, and kind of just familiarizing myself with some of the activists in the movement and, and, and trying to just be less – to have that be more normal in my life. Um, something I so I'm seeing more kinds of disability, even if it's not like right next to me. But how yeah. do you? But for people, because there are disabled people all around us on the subway and our in our you know at work, um, at restaurants. Um, how do you kind of get better at not being a jerk? Well, I, I want to plug. There's a UK-based disability rights organization called Scope that did a series of videos that are hilarious called "End the Awkward," and they are great and they are. You know, they are fun. They are fun, hilarious videos that are exactly about that. Um, and, you know, one of them is just not to, don't be awkward. And if you <laughs> screw up and you start being awkward, say, oops, I screwed up. And try, try again. Uh, it, it, I don't know, what, with, with privilege, and, and I have a lot of it in my life, comes the opportunity to, to take the heat and to screw up. And people are, and you're going to get second chances. And that's not a fair thing, but I think it's real. Um, so when I screw up, I just try to own it and not get defensive and listen and try to keep people from burning bridges with me. But if I fail, then, 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 um, then I fail. But I, I try to, I try to acknowledge my screw ups and, and, to to figure out, to think really hard about what I did wrong and how to, how to do it better. We, we have a big societal problem of stigma around disability. So it's not just, uh, it's not, and it's not just abled people who don't know what to say. A lot of disabled people have not uh, suffer from internalized ableism and are also not sure how to talk about their disability and are closeted and hide it. And so we have a lot, we have a lot of work to do in general about changing the conversation around disability. And that's why I'm encouraged by people. There's a guy, Lawrence Carter Long, who started um, say the hashtag Say the Word just to say the word disabled. Don't say special needs. Don't say handicapped. Don't say differentially able. Just say disabled. Um, there's, uh, as you talked about, Disabled and Cute by Kia Brown, who was talking about, look, you can be disabled. You can own it. And you can also be super cute. And here's a picture. And that, that took off. Um, there's Melissa Thompson, who talked about disability too white. I'm just thinking about the sort of the hashtags. But saying, you know, when we imagine disability, we often 
forget to think about other kinds of diversity in that our images of disability tend to be very white-oriented instead of uh, disabled people of color. Again, tens of millions of disabled people of color just in this country. So these are the kinds of places where I think uh, disabled leaders are trying to change the conversation, both within our community and more broadly. All right. Well, I appreciate that. And um, I know people will want to follow you on Twitter. You are? I'm at Lollardfish. It seemed like a perfectly good... uh, uh, internet moniker in 1994 when uh, the internet was new. Who knew that this stuff was going to matter so much? But uh, I've I've kept it going. All right. Um, I highly recommend a good follow. And of course, look to him for other people to follow on Twitter to try and familiarize yourself with this really interesting and vibrant and important movement. Thank you so much for joining us, David. Thank you, Anna. That's our show. I hope it was just enough awkward for you. It was for me. If you are a fan of the show, if you enjoyed this, please remember to rate and review on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings are how people find out about the show and how we get on the charts, which, of course, is the only thing that matters. If you want to give direct feedback, there is a Twitter feed for the show. It is at crooked underscore friends. Again, that's at crooked underscore friends. Or you can write me directly at friendslikepod at gmail.com. Again, that's friendslikepod at gmail.com. I am also on Twitter myself at Anna Marie Cox. That is a rather busy account, so I may not see it. So you'll have better luck sending an email or a tweet directly to the show's accounts. And remember, if you have a question or an issue that you want us to deal with in some way, if it's about relationships and politics, the politics of relationships and the relationships inside politics, you might consider sending a voicemail and we will maybe figure out some expert to have on to help you out. That is a goal of the show, a goal of mine. Thanks again for listening. We are every Friday from here on out. Is Anna Marie Cox with Friends Like These. <laughs>